0: You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more.
1: If you could open your Bibles up to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 9. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 9. If you've got one of the blue Bibles, it's page 789. If you've got a phone, I can't tell you what page it is, or it's up on screen behind me. Jeremiah 29, 1 to 9. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the skilled workers and the craftsmen had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and to Jeremiah, Jeremiah son of Hilkai, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city of which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord.
0: Thanks very much, Chris. Well, do keep your Bibles open if you have one. We are looking currently at a series called Reformed, which is focusing on just a number of key things that we believe as a church that shapes uh, the way that we do things, shapes the way that we operate, shapes what we say yes to, uh, shapes what we, what we say no to. And so actually, if you are new at City Church, this is a great Sunday for you to come not only for the baptisms, but also because it'll give you a little bit of a window of what this church is really like. If you've been here Uh, for a long time, then this is going to be a good refresher to remind us about actually what's our heartbeat here as a community. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all that we've enjoyed so far in the service. We do thank you for the baptisms of Melissa and Charlotte and the testimony of your goodness and your grace to them and to us as a community. Father, as we come here to hear this passage unpacked for us, We remember that you are a God who is not distant, but one who speaks to every single one of us. And we ask by the power of your Spirit that none of us would leave this place this afternoon unchanged. Amen. Let me begin uh, with a question for some of you who are new. It might seem rather intrusive, but here's the question. What's the vision for your life? What's the vision for your life? The pastor and writer, Mark Sayers, recently said that in his opinion, one of the biggest problems with current Western culture, with people's vision for their lives, revolved around what he called as optimization. Optimization. Optimization is the idea that you are pursuing like a quest Just improving a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Optimization is when you say to yourself, actually, I just want a little bit more control over my inbox. I just want a few less calories. I just want a little bit more salary. I just want to pay a little bit less rent. Now, these things are not bad in themselves, are they? Little bits of self-optimization, where we just improve things a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. A little bit more of this. A little less of that. Nothing wrong with that, per se. But what this passage is going to tell us this afternoon is if that's optimization, is actually the vision of your life a vision that you turn as a quest, that you will pursue at any cost across the world. Actually, the reward for a life like that, a life that pursues only just slight marginal gains, well, your reward will be what is known as a wasted life. These are strong words, aren't they, from this passage that was written so many years ago. But let me tell you a little bit about this passage that Chris just read. It's a letter that was written many years ago to a community like us that lived in a city. Look with me at verse 2, we're told that actually the Israelites who were once living in the southern kingdom of Judah had been conquered by the great and massive Babylonian Empire and all of their key workers had been taken, captured, dragged a thousand miles from Jerusalem all the way to this city of Babylon. Babylon the capital of the Babylonian Empire. Think about it. It's a 1,000 miles from home. You've been dragged, and you find yourself living on the fringes of perhaps the great city of the ancient Near East, probably in some sort of ramshackle shantytown equivalent to, I don't know, the refugee camp outside of Calais. And this is where you are told by the Babylonian authorities that you need to be based. Because if you were um, one of the Jews who had been taken all the way from uh, Judah to Babylon, you would have found that Babylon would have been a highly intimidating place to be. It was a place of advanced technology. It was a place of temple and palace skyscrapers. The way it worked in Babylon was the higher you built your temples, the more your gods would be pleased with you. And so Beetham Tower, one of Manchester's largest skyscrapers, a homage to the worship of wealth and commerce, would not have been out of place here in the ancient city of Babylon. And so, if you were a Jew who'd been taken from your homeland a thousand miles to Babylon, if you found yourself in this unknown and very strange city, well, here's the question What would God want them to do? What would God want them to do? Well, I've got two points this afternoon, and the first one's this Don't bunker. Don't bunker. You see, the first instinct for a believer who has been relocated to this brand new intimidating city is to cultivate in their mind a warlike bunker mentality. That is, when you are so fearful that the culture around you is going to squeeze the life out of your faith, that you operate in your head as if there is a two-meter concrete wall all around you between yourself, perhaps your family, your friendship groups, and the rest of the culture out there. You build a massive wall in your mind. You hide away. That's a bunker mentality and this is most likely what jeremiah who wrote this letter is warning against in verses 8 and 9 look with me at verses 8 and 9 he was warning against what was most likely a very very popular opinion amongst the jewish exiles that they didn't have to wait very long before god would take them back home It was the type of thing that in the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of TikTok reels, the message constantly going around that's trending high would have been hashtag going home soon. That's what they would have been about. And you can see the attraction, can't you? Communities often underestimate in a time of crisis how long it's going to take to move through it. For example, do you remember in 2019 when the government called the first lockdown where we all had to stay at home and businesses and schools and universities shut? The the word going around back in the very first lockdown is we were only going to be in it for two weeks. We're only going to be in two weeks. Do you remember that? Apparently it turned out a little bit different. See, communities tend to underestimate, and most likely the Jews in exile were saying to themselves, Look, we're only here for a short time, guys. Look, pull up the drawbridge. Don't unpack your bags, because we're only temporary. Let Babylon be Babylon, and let us be us. And look at what God's response to this war bunker mentality is in verse 9. Do you see it? See what he says? lies, absolute lies. You see, this letter could have easily been written to us today. It's this mentality, it's, look, you know, I don't think I'll be in Manchester very long. I'm on a short course, I've got a short contract, therefore I will just withdraw and I'll do me. Or it's the idea that, you know, I just don't feel very connected in Manchester and so I'll just withdraw, and I'll just do me. Or it's even saying, look, I don't really like Manchester. It's nothing like my hometown. And so I'll just withdraw, and I'll just do me. I wonder if you feel like that. The, uh, the writer, Malcolm Gladwell, explores in, in his book, The Tipping Point, Um a phenomenon known as the bystander effect, the bystander effect. You see, he recounts that back in 1964, in the great city of New York, there was a tragic murder of a lady called Kitty Genovese. And the problem with this murder, as tragic as it was, is Kitty was screaming, asking for help from her assailant for a long time. She pleaded with people to help her, that, that, that people would call the police, that she was being attacked. Do you know how many people heard her cries? The reports say 38 people heard Genevieve's cries for help. But each person assumed that someone else was going to call the police. Someone else would do it, it's someone else's problem. And so no one called the police, and she was horrifically murdered. The bystander effect. You see, your attempt to be a good person by keeping away from the city will actually lead you to become the very version of yourself that you're trying to get away from. The headline challenge here in our passage from Jeremiah is that in God's world, there is no such phrase as it's someone else's problem. No such phrase. You see, you might not be the person who's called to fix it, but the problem still belongs to you. Let me put it like this. When you're leaving City Church Manchester this afternoon and you go out onto the streets of this city, there's a good chance you may well bump into a homeless person. And look, you may choose not to give them money because for various reasons you might think that is not the best way to help them. However, this stranger's situation, their plight, their distress is still a problem that belongs to you. Why? Because you are a citizen of this city. And it doesn't matter whether you were born here or you arrived last week. Which makes us think, doesn't it? How should the believers who were taken to Babylon... How should they treat Babylon? It makes us think here we are in Manchester. How should we here this afternoon treat Manchester? Well, come with me to our our second and final point. Get your hands dirty. Get your hands dirty. In the 1950s, there was a very clever guy called Reinhold Niebuhr, and he wrote a very famous book that outlined different positions that believers had towards engaging with the culture around them. And his definition of culture, let's get a bit nerdy on this, shall we? Let's get a bit nerdy. His definition of culture was, it is the social life of humanity It is the environment created by human beings in areas of language or habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, and technical processes and values. And what Niebuhr did is he labeled the reformed position. This is the reformed series we're looking at. That's why I'm saying this. He labeled the reformed position that was exhibited by people, theologians like John Calvin, who you might have heard of, he labelled it as the Christ transforming culture position. What is that? Well, number one, it emphasised the goodness of creation, that God actually made a really good creation. And number two, believers affirm what can be affirmed in the culture and they seek to transform all that is corrupted by sin and selfishness in the culture. Do you see? That's, that's the Christ transforming culture position. You look at culture as a good thing gifted by God. You like to celebrate the stuff that you can say, no, that is true. That reflects the God of creation that's revealed in the Bible. But anywhere you see the consequences of sin, of brokenness in the world, actually you as a believer choose to do something about it. An example of that would be on July the 31st, 1562. In a church, a little bit like this, and a pulpit, a little bit like this, John Calvin, I haven't got a picture of him, but you need to imagine a man whose beard would have been as luxuriant to someone who would fit into any northern quarter kind of microbrewery. That's John Calvin. You're not going to hear that definition from Ralph, but you'll hear it from me. John Calvin preached in a pulpit just like this to his community in response to the powerful princes of his day who ruled with selfishness and ruthlessness and greed and abuse of power. He said this. Justice and judgment is a universal rule which applies to everyone. It means governing oneself so as to treat everyone fairly and properly. And it means standing against and resisting evil whenever it is necessary to relieve the poor, the afflicted people. In other words, this is God's world This is God's world. And until he returns to make all things right and all bad things untrue, until then, until that moment, our role as believers is to repair the areas of our culture that are broken or distorted by sin. That is our rebellion against God. In other words, The Christian's duty is to get their hands dirty. What does that mean? It means that the the Christian, they leave the bunker. It means that they identify which aspects of the culture they can enjoy, and they celebrate those things, because they are wonderful things that tell us something of the very goodness of God. And then they identify areas of their city where things are wrong and broken, and not consistent with the way that God has asked us to live, and they seek to do something about it. That's what that means. The writer Whitney Hopler says this, and I like this quote. It kind of gets me kind of excited, which is why I want to share it with you. It's this. If you want to make a powerful and lasting impact on the culture... You've got to do more than just consume it, critique it, condemn it, or copy it. The only way to truly change the culture is to create something new for it. Something that will inspire people enough to start to reshape their world. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Well, this is the reformed understanding of how we should engage with the culture. This is what verse 7 means in our Bibles. Look at verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Flowing out of that verse, out of that verse, is the idea, the belief that justice should be for all. The belief in the goodness of social action. The belief in the value of volunteering or the charity sector. They're all rooted, these things that many of us just take for granted, they're all rooted in past Christians who walked out of the bunker and decided that they were going to get their hands dirty in their city where God had placed them. Well, here's the question, right? Does that mean that all of us need to become political activists or social reformers or um, social entrepreneurs? Well, here's the thing. Perhaps some of us, that is absolutely true. And that is exactly what you should be seeking to do with your life. But look at the really, really surprising instructions God gives to the exiles in verses 5 and 6. This is how God wants them to particularly, the majority, to transform the megapolis of Babylon. Look me at me in verses 5 and 6. This is remarkable. I read it to you. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. That's the instruction for transforming your city. But you might be thinking, yeah Matt, but that just sounds like normal stuff. It's hardly up there with Emmeline Pankhurst's war cry. Do you remember that? The woman who brought uh, women's suffrage to a national volume. She said, I'd rather be a rebel than a slave. That's kind of pretty triumphant kind of, yes, raw, gut-wrenching stuff. What Jeremiah verses verses 5 and 6 seems to say is, just do normal life. Well, actually for the believer these ordinary things are part of God's extraordinary plan let me explain let me ask you this question do verses 5 and 6 which you read in your bibles don't they remind you of something don't they feel a little bit familiar of somewhere else in the bible is there not a kind of slight sense of deja vu when you read verses 5 and 6 well let me explain Verses 5 and 6 take us right back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. You see, this letter isn't just a letter for those who were in Babylon all those years ago. Actually, the principles of this letter are for us today, because they were baked into the very DNA of God's good creation. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I think it will come up on our screen. It says this, God's just made everything. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Do you see, the job description of being a representative, an image bearer of God in the world, is to rule over all things, all created things. Now, we're slightly uncomfortable with that word rule, aren't we? But actually, this word rule doesn't suggest being a tyrant. That's not what this is about. It's rather saying your role is to be a really careful steward of God's good gift of creation. It's His world, and He's given it to you to look after. Take care of what God has provided, develop it, nurture it cultivate it so that it flourishes in other words we are told that wherever we are placed in the world that we are to be culture makers that doesn't matter whether you are a cleaner or whether you are a da Vinci-esque painter you are a culture maker and this is what you're called to do represent God in the corner of the world that he's given you to look after And then he says that the way to do this extraordinary work of representing him in the world is in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now that word subdue, we're uncomfortable with that word subdue, but really it's garden language. It's like a gardener who... um, prunes back the weeds in order for the garden to flourish or subdues the tree fungi so the fruits can bud, blossom, and provide. That's what that word subdue means. But note the phrase, be fruitful and increase in number. That is a shorthand phrase for do the normal things of life. Just do the normal things of life. Be fruitful in your work, so that you can eat and that you can create an environment where a community made up of units of families and of friends can flourish. That's what this is talking about. Well, hang on, Matt. Does that mean a few of us are going to make our mark in the world and then for the rest of us, the majority of us, it's just business as usual? Actually, no. No. Did you notice the um, instructions? Come back with me to the Jeremiah letter. Did you notice the instructions from God in the letter emphasized that it's transformation over a long period of time? Did you see that it's growing gardens? It's having children. It's seeing them married. It's seeing grandchildren come forward. Even the very idea of changing systemic structures in our society, all of those things take a very, very long time. Right, this is nosebleed application coming up, okay? So seatbelts on. If you were asleep, now's the time to kind of poke your friend. Meaning, the application for the Jewish exiles who were longing to book an Uber to Babylon Airport to go home, the application is this. Put down roots and stay long enough to really make a difference as an image bearer of the God of the universe. Don't shoot the messenger. What might that mean for us? Okay. What might that mean for us here in Manchester? Well it might mean it might mean Manchester, okay? I love this city. It might be Manchester, but equally, this could be applied somewhere else in the world. could be applied somewhere else in the world. But wherever it is, the application for us here this afternoon is swim against the tide of culture that sees actually just a vision for self-improvement that means continually moving, continually uprooting, continually living a superficial involvement wherever you are. Go against that tide. Don't do that. Don't do that. Rather, find a place. Could be Manchester. Could be somewhere else. Find a place where you can make a deep, deep, Difference to that location, to that neighborhood, to that community, to that institutional culture. Find a place. Do you feel how radical this letter would have been to the Jews in exile? Because do you feel how radical it is for us in this room this afternoon? This is utterly countercultural. You see, if you are sitting there thinking, well, well, if I'm in Manchester and I'm looking to build a garden of healthy culture in this city, where do I go? Well, what do I do as I wait for Jesus to liberate me, not from exile in Babylon, but actually liberate me to the new creation where there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more crying and pain. What do I do as I wait for Jesus to come back? Well, here's the thing. Why not look at the fact that this city has 50% of its children that live beneath the poverty line? Do you want to start there? What about this fact that this city has a challenge with people who do not have a place to live, but on the streets of this city, in huge vulnerability and danger? Do you want to do something with that? What about the fact that loneliness in this city is a bigger epidemic that is more dangerous than COVID ever was? Loneliness. Do you want to do something with that? Do you want to do something with the fact that next to London, Manchester is the second fastest growing city in the UK? Do you want to do something with the fact that 97% of the 2.8 million people who live in our great city, if Jesus was to come back today, they would find that an absolute tragedy because they do not know him. Do you want to do something with that? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. The Christian uh, cultural thinker, a very famous guy called Francis Schaeffer, he also had a remarkable beard. You should Google him. (laughs) This is a really good quote from Schaeffer. I like this one. He says this. No work of art is more important than the Christian life. And every Christian is called to be an artist in this sense. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. So let's be practical. Four applications. Your relationships are more important than your career trajectory. Number one, parents, don't let your children's only connection, contribution to this city be the fact that they're educated in it. Number three, youth. If you're a teenager, you need to know that God has not given up on your year group. So you don't give up on it either. Number four, when you leave your job, whenever that may be, the priority is not to be remembered as you were the best at whatever you did. The priority is to be remembered that you were the one who cared the most. Here's a bonus fifth. If you use online dating... Where that other person lives is not an incidental detail. It has the potential to be a deal breaker for you. Now, you might come back to me, okay, you might come back to me, you might say, yes, Matt, but look, but if I did all of those things, if I lived like that, then life would be hard. And then I would turn to you and say, yes, it would be hard, but why do you think it would be hard? And then you might turn to me and say, well, it would be hard because it would mean that I might need to put others before myself. And I would say to you, yeah, yeah. You see, in most cultures... Most cultures around the world, the most powerful people, drink champagne in the security of very lovely high-walled palaces, whilst they send all of their minions to the front lines to risk their lives doing dangerous things, getting their hands dirty for the sake of their country. But not so with the God of Christianity. He took on flesh to become one of us. He refused to bunker in a palace, but be born in a stable. Do you remember that? To be born in a minimum wage family, where by school age, he'd already been a refugee. He had already touched the poverty of the most vulnerable of our world. And as an adult, he refused to bunker down and just be a celebrity. He touched the leper. He touched those who were sick. And he touched those who were forgotten to welcome them. By his 30s, he refused to bunker down in power or prestige or just pleasure. And he touched political injustice... He himself was a victim of physical abuse. He touched loneliness. And ultimately, he touched death. But Jesus, look, Jesus is more than just a good example to us. He came to give us the one thing, the one thing we need in life more than anything else. He came to give us a restored relationship with our Creator so that we would always know that we have ultimate value in life. Secondly, he came to give us forgiveness from sin and shame, meaning that we were given the ultimate freedom from the horrors of our past, no longer had to have a grip on us. And thirdly, he he came to give us the promise of a place in the new creation, It is the ultimate gift of security from the dangers of this world. Why did he do that? And why does that make a difference to us here today? Because only when you have received the greatest gift that life can give you, then you can be prepared to give away your life for others. Only when you can see where you belong in God's great big plan for the world can you pursue with unfailing resilience a vision that will transform whichever corner of the world our God has placed you in. Let me go back to that vision of optimization. I wonder if you're living life to have a slightly better quality of skin a slightly better social life play slightly less tax have a slightly bigger house a slightly faster car, a slightly nicer holiday a slightly more educated family a slightly better romance life If that's you. I wonder if your vision is too small. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a good God. And that Jesus became one of us, became rooted. Gave his life away so that we would gain everything. Everything. Not so that we could hoard it in a bunker until you return, but so to model the generosity that we have received, that we might leave the bunker and go out in the city to get our hands dirty in order to transform it for your glory. Amen. Amen.